I wonder if I asked you who the first Christian was, what you would say. It's a bit of a trick question because, well, we know that the Christians were first called Christians sometime in the book of Acts, but people like to say the church's birthday was Pentecost, but then we have all these people who believed in Jesus during his lifetime, and then theologians will get really clever and they'll say, well, God has always had a people from the book of Genesis, but I think we can tentatively say that Mary Magdalene was the first Christian. She was the first person to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. I'm just gonna let that settle. Some of the theological minds in the room might want to debate that. But we see in our passage, we see in John chapter 20, a number of different people come to faith. And I think it has a number of things to say to us about our faith. And the first is that faith is impossible. And what I mean by that is that we read in the story three people who do come to faith. We didn't quite read on far enough to hear about Peter coming to faith, but we have Mary, we have Peter, and we have the other disciple who I'm going to call John. And again, the more theological minds in the room, you might want to debate me on that, but you can, I don't know, take me outside afterwards or something if you disagree. But none of the people in this story could have engineered their faith for themselves. They had all the information in front of them, but none believed without the power of the Holy Spirit. None believed without the risen Lord Jesus encountering them and working in them. None of these people amazingly expected the resurrection. Now, it really should have been expected Jesus told them uh, in the book of Mark alone, we read it in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. Jesus tells them the Son of Man is going to be killed. He's going to be handed over, killed by sinners, and on the third day he will rise. But when Mary sees the empty tomb, she doesn't think, I know Jesus said he was going to rise. No, it never even occurs to her. In verse two, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. But she definitely knew what Jesus had said. It was widely known. At, at the end of Matthew chapter 27, we're told that the, the temple leaders go to Pilate and they say, look, this guy said that he was going to be handed over and killed and he was going to rise again. So let's set some guards outside the tomb. So even they knew about it. It was very widely known. But nobody actually seems to have been expecting it. The Jewish leaders didn't. They thought that the disciples were going to come and steal the body. They certainly didn't think that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Many Jewish people didn't believe in the resurrection at all. Uh, some did believe in a resurrection of the righteous at the end of time, but they certainly didn't expect in the here and now, as it was for them, Jesus to rise from the dead. The disciples they clearly didn't expect it. Um, if you'd been expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, you would think that they would have been hiding out, spying the tomb, keeping watch, but they didn't. And the woman didn't expect it. They went to put spices on the body. They had all the information. Jesus had told them very plainly, and now here it is, the tomb is empty, and Mary's first reaction, I don't know where they've put him. She wasn't expecting it either, 
Peter doesn't believe. The other disciple, John, it's, we're told fascinating things about him. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, we're told that he believed, but then immediately we're told they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Something has happened within John there, but he doesn't actually know just quite yet what that is. The teaching of Scripture is that faith is a gift. It's of God. It's impossible for anyone, even with all the facts in front of them, even with the clear teaching of Jesus that it was going to happen, it was impossible for them to believe unless the Lord gives them the gift of faith. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Dead people don't make themselves alive. This isn't something that people can do for themselves. It's completely of God. One of my um, guilty pleasures um, with Justine is that we watch The Apprentice, the TV show where Lord Sugar um, tries to pick out a new business partner. And if you don't watch it, basically what's on offer is a £250,000 investment. Now there are 16 contestants and they go around doing all these various tasks, trying to prove to Lord Sugar that they can do business, that they can do marketing, that they can do advertising, that they can sell, that they can negotiate, and all of that. But at the end of the day, they don't get to choose. They don't get to say, Lord Sugar, I'm going to be your business partner. It's completely down to him. They can only do their best and kind of show him what they're made of, but at the end of the day, it's down to him. And actually, quite often, Alan Sugar goes by his gut feeling. When he has contestants in front of him and he doesn't really know how to separate them, he just, more often than not, he says, you know, my gut just says, I can't be your business partner. You're fired. And that's it. They're out. But God doesn't go by a gut feeling. God is rich in mercy. We're not like those contestants on The Apprentice who kind of have to prove ourselves and show our best and hope that God will pick us. God is rich in mercy. It's a gift, and he willingly gives it to us. Mary was the first Christian, but she didn't make herself a Christian, even though she had all the information in front of her. It was the same for the other two who we'll think about a bit later. But I think that this fact that faith is impossible, and hopefully I've explained what I mean by that, it has two big implications for us. First, I think it should direct our prayers. You know, very often in evangelism, we pray for the opportunity to share. We pray that people will come along to things in church. And those are good things to pray about, but we also need to pray, and we should pray, that God will give the gift of faith. Now, we need to back those prayers up by sharing the gospel, by showing that our faith is rational, that we do have the information, but at the end of the day, we're completely dependent on God in our evangelism, and we need to pray that he will give people the gift of faith. But the second implication of this is a much more personal one, is that it's incredibly freeing because we think in our lives that we're happiest when we are in control. But the glory of the gospel is that the opposite 
is true. I often come across people um, in church in different places, um, and, and they maybe have a problem. They're maybe struggling with a sin, or um, their devotional life isn't going well, or whatever it is. And underneath all of it, they'll never say this, but underneath all of it, I think, is the thought that they feel they don't have enough faith. I'm not quite doing well enough. I'm not quite living the way I think I should be living to please the Lord. I don't have enough faith. But the gospel says that God has given you enough faith. We could never hold on ourselves. Sometimes we sing together, when I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And the amazing encouragement of the gospel is that actually we don't have to hold on. Yes, we do actively put our faith in him, but that faith is a gift from him. And so even when that seems to falter and fail, we're completely secure in the risen Christ. Second thing in this uh, passage in John 20 that uh, is relating to our faith is that faith is entirely rational. Now, I've just spent some time saying that it's impossible and that nobody will ever reason their way to faith, even if they have all the information, but faith is rational. There's always a supernatural component, that's true, but faith is rational. The evidence does stack up and it has to stack up. So let's have a look at some of the evidence in John 20, because we tend to have this assumption, certainly the world does, but sometimes we're guilty of it too, that we're more sophisticated than people who lived a long time ago and that we're more sophisticated, we have a more a complex way of thinking than some of the ancient texts like the Bible. And so lots of people try to reason that it would have been easy to fool the disciples into thinking the resurrection would have happened. It would have been easy for them just to whip up a bit of a crowd. Ancient people believed in all sorts of magic and supernatural stuff. So they'd have been very gullible. You know, they're not as sophisticated as we are. They would have believed this claim about the resurrection. It's easy to say that that would have just happened and that thousands of people would have just accepted it. I've been reading um, a, a book this week in, in preparation um, as Tim Keller looks at this passage of scripture um, and he says this very succinctly. He says, the problem with this theory is that it's all wrong. It's all wrong. It doesn't make any sense when you actually examine the evidence because the Greeks and Romans who lived um, in the Middle East at that time, they would not have expected a resurrection. And in fact, it wouldn't have even been desirable for them to be resurrected. They believed that the spirit was pure and that the body, that all matter was sort of evil or unclean. And they liked this idea of the spirit kind of floating off somewhere and being in the afterlife and being quite happy, quite apart from the body. But the idea that your spirit would have returned to the body and that you would have lived again, that would have just been completely anathema to them. They wouldn't have wanted it, they wouldn't have liked it, and they certainly wouldn't have expected it. They wouldn't have preached it as good news. We've already explored the fact that the Jews wouldn't have expected it. John tells us earlier in his gospel, back in chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, we see this little exchange between Jesus and Lazarus' sister, Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. No one was expecting the resurrection and no one would have been easily tricked into believing it. No one was remotely open to believing it. I mean, the gospels don't exactly portray the disciples as open to it. The opposite's true. They're as incredulous as many people would be today. Thomas, even when his friends, trusted friends, tell him that they've seen Jesus, no, unless I see him, unless I put my hands in the wounds, I will not believe. On top of that, all four gospel writers tell us that the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. And in the first century, women were not considered reliable witnesses. If the disciples had made this up, they wouldn't have made it up this way. They wouldn't have chosen women as the first witnesses. They wouldn't have chosen Mary as the first Christian. And they probably wouldn't have portrayed themselves as so obtuse, literally told this is going to happen and then not believing it. They wouldn't have made it up that way. About seven or eight years ago, um, my mum was sitting on, the own, on her own in her house and suddenly out of nowhere there was a massive noise, a big smash, glass shattering going absolutely everywhere. It made her jump out of her skin. She was petrified and she ran upstairs towards the scene of the noise where it had come from and she went through her bedroom into the bathroom, glass everywhere glass absolutely everywhere and she thought that somebody must have thrown a brick through the window that was her first thought but then she looked at the window and it was completely intact but the shower door was in pieces all around the room nothing had fallen into it nothing it just smashed it just smashed everywhere now what would we do without google she looked it up and right enough apparently glass can sometimes do this particularly the kind of single pane glass that you would get in a shower door and this is what had happened a, a difference in temperature or humidity or whatever it was the conditions had just caused the glass to completely smash there might have been a weakness in it and we can only speculate but it just smashed and she had to phone my dad and tell him Norman, you're not going to believe what's happened, but our shower door smashed. How did that happen? Well, I was sitting downstairs. Nothing happened. It just smashed. Now, you don't know my mother, so you don't know maybe if she's a reliable witness or not. But if she had to give an account for why the glass had broken, if, if she had, in a moment of rage, taken a chair to the shower door and smashed it and decided, oh dear, I don't think I can tell my family that I've had this moment of rage, what am I going to come up with? She wouldn't have come up with that. Maybe she would have, maybe, I don't know, been walking over to the sink and tumbled into it and, and it smashed into pieces, or maybe she would have been vacuuming and, you know, she just was too vigorous and the vacuum went flying at it. I don't know, she would have come up with something better than I was sitting downstairs and it just happened all by itself. I mean, that's what my daughters say when they spill their juice. They say, Daddy, I don't know, I didn't touch it and it just fell over. And I say, did you knock it over? Yeah, I knocked it over. If she'd been coming up with a story, she wouldn't have come up with that. The most rational explanation of her story is that it happened, is that it's true. And the most rational explanation of the Easter story of so many witnesses, of women being the first, of the disciples not believing it, of this movement of believers in a risen Lord spreading so quickly to thousands of people within a matter of weeks, 
the most rational explanation when you weigh it all up is that it happened. And this helps us in our witness. It ought to help us uh, spread the gospel. It's part of the argument actually that Peter makes on the day of Pentecost. The people think the disciples are drunk. That's why they're speaking all these funny words. But Peter is completely reasoned. He shows how that explanation doesn't actually fit with the evidence. It's early in the morning, so they're not likely to be drunk. And anyway, they're not talking gibberish. They're speaking in other languages that people from other places understand. What actually fits the evidence is that they're possessed by the Holy Spirit and what they're saying is true. And when rational people like you and me can believe in the resurrection and can explain it clearly, and we can show that it's supported by the facts then, others can believe. It's true that there's a supernatural component, of course there is. God has to give them the gift of faith. But it's also true that as we share our faith confidently, we can do so because it does fit with the evidence. We're not asking people to believe in something far-fetched and out of this world. We share with people about the risen Christ because the evidence stacks up and our faith confirms what we cannot see, that Jesus is alive. And the final thing I want us to think about this evening briefly is that faith is by grace. It's hard to read this story and, and not notice just how gracious Jesus is to Mary, to all the believers um, in John 20. If you read through it all, you'll see that all the named characters come to faith in a different way, um, but it's always by grace. I mean, Mary sees Jesus first, and John, well, something happens in his heart even before he really understands that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Peter sees Jesus and believes. Thomas doubts, and then he sees and touches and believes. And I suppose this is a picture about um, the many ways that people can come to faith, because it can happen in a number of ways. Uh, one way to think of this um, that my friend shared with me one time and I'd always stuck with me um, is to think about coming into Northern Ireland from the Republic of Ireland, coming into paradise from outside of paradise. Now, a lot of people will come up the M1 and they'll see the sign, they'll see welcome to Northern Ireland. It's obvious, speed limits are in miles per hour. If they're not from here, they maybe wonder what that weird circle is with a line across it. But something has changed, it's obvious. I know where I am, I know I've entered the promised land. But some people come to Northern Ireland on back roads and even some roads where the border's right down the middle and if you live on one side, you're in the Republic of Ireland and if you live on the other side, you're in Northern Ireland and you could cross really without noticing. You just drive along maybe an unmarked country road and no, you don't even know that you've crossed over but then you maybe come to a town and you see a phone box and you think, oh, that looks a bit different. Maybe you see a post box, you think oh, that's a different color. And slowly but surely you kind of piece together the pieces of evidence and you realize, actually I crossed over some time ago, but now I see it, now I get it. For Mary, it was like the big sign in the road. I see the risen Jesus and I believe. For John, he crossed over, we're told he believed. He was able to write in retrospect that he, at the tomb he saw and he believed, but 
He didn't understand yet. He didn't have the full picture, but something had happened in his heart. God had given him the gift of grace. Peter doesn't get it at first. He runs into the tomb and, and he sees the, the, the grave clothes lying there. And, and the word for see there is a word which really means to, to, to think about, to see, to notice, to, to look and think, what is going on here? It's not just the simple verb to see. It's, it's to kind of ponder, to think about. And then Thomas, well, he doesn't believe it. Maybe he's taken over the border, kicking and screaming. Maybe that's not the best analogy, but you get the idea. He doesn't quite get it at first, but it's always by grace. Grace shown to people who don't get it by themselves. You know, Mary's the first Christian, and I think that's particularly significant because church history tells us that Mary had a very checkered past. One commentator puts it like this. In choosing Mary as the first Christian, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. My salvation is not based on pedigree. It's not based on moral attainments, raw talent, level of effort, or track record. I've not come to call those who are strong, but to call those who are weak. As we finish this Easter day, I want to leave you with this. Becoming a Christian happens by grace. We get the gift of God, of faith, built on thinking and evidence, but ignited by a spark from the Spirit of God, seeing that Jesus has done everything for us. But it's not just becoming a Christian that happens by grace. It's continuing as a Christian that happens by grace. Because, yeah, we might want to say that Mary became a Christian at this point because she believed in the risen Christ. But as I said in my introduction, it's a bit more nuanced than that, isn't it? It's also true to say that Mary was already a follower of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus has done something. She doesn't quite get it, but that's okay because Jesus shows her more grace. From the fullness of his glory, we have received grace upon grace. That's the way it is for us. This little interaction between Mary and the risen Lord could almost have been any of us. Not seeing the Lord's purposes, lacking the faith and understanding to see that Jesus would be faithful to keep his promises, despairing at the immediate circumstances of this life and not seeing the bigger picture. But Jesus is so gentle. Mary, he says, in John 10, Jesus says that he knows his sheep and they know his voice. And here we see it. It's just one word. He's so kind. He's so patient when he asks her questions and she doesn't even recognize him at first. Her lapse, her lack of faith, it all melts away to nothing as she sees the risen Lord and she's sent on her way to serve him. And she comes exactly as he is. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. She spoke in her own language. Some translations say that it's Hebrew. Um, the word Hebrew on it just means the language of the Hebrews. The scholars are going to debate at this point whether that's Hebrew or Aramaic. I'll let you make up your own decision. But the point is she spoke in her own tongue. She didn't have to say anything fancy, just teacher. She realized who he was and she came simply as she is. Maybe today uh, you're going through a hard time. Maybe you're despairing. Maybe 
you've let the Lord down. Maybe you're struggling to see him just now. Maybe he seems far away. But the risen Lord is here. He is risen. He's in control. He's God. I serve a risen Savior. He's living today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. And he loves you. And he wants you to know that he lives and he wants to restore you again to the joy of knowing and serving him. All you have to do is receive his grace. Come as you are. And you'll know again the joy of knowing and being sent out to serve him. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we again give you thanks for the risen Christ. And we give you thanks for his grace shown to these, um, these early believers, these ones who didn't understand what you were doing and yet came to see and believe. And so, Lord, in response, we offer ourselves to you. Lord, wherever we're at in our walk with you this evening, we come to you simply to receive your grace. And Lord, we ask that as we do that, you'd be pleased to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, and to send us out again in your service. Lord, may we know the presence of the Lord Jesus with us each and every single day, because he lives. And we pray in his name. Amen.